Good evening, everyone. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Opera House, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here tonight for our talk from Michael Morrie, Bush, Howard, um, and Injustice at Guantanamo Bay. Um, Michael is going to be in conversation tonight with Philip Curry, the Chief Political Correspondent for the Australian Financial Review, previously the Chief Political Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald, and News Limited's Correspondent in New York. This talk's part of our Ideas at the House series. Um, our guests this evening are going to be in conversation and there will be time for some questions and discussion from you with microphones in the auditorium when, um, when at, the, at, a, at a point when, when uh, they're ready for that. So um, please switch your phones onto silent. Uh, get ready for some interesting conversation because I've probably doomed you all by telling our guests that we have wonderful audiences who ask very intelligent things. Um, and please join me in welcoming uh, uh, Michael Morey and Philip Curry to the stage. Um, oh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming. For those of you who don't know me, which is probably most of you, I'm Phil Curry from the Australian Financial Review. Just a, uh, you may be wondering why I'm here talking to him. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, the David Hicks story essentially followed my career or vice versa. For about 10 years, I, I began life in journalism uh, at the Adelaide Advertiser, uh, the, daily, the daily tabloid in Adelaide. And uh, I was actually the political editor of that paper in 2001. Uh, when David Hicks was taken, or captured if you like, and sold to the Americans. And so I first began writing the story then. Um, and then in about 2003, I was assigned uh, as a News Limited correspondent to New York City uh, for a couple of years as the North American correspondent. And uh, things coincided there. And this is where Dan um, became involved with the Hicks case, and I covered events over there. And then Upon my return to, uh, to Australia, I joined the Sydney Morning Herald and, as we all know, the, uh, the, the issue finally got settled uh, in 2007, in election year 2007, when it became quite a political problem for the Howard government. It did a full 180-degree turn from what it started as to what it became, uh, due largely uh, to the efforts of this fellow here, uh, which we'll, I'm sure we're all keen to hear about tonight. Um, I think, having read the book, uh, one of the most, I think the most striking theme uh, that comes out is, is how um, Dan, or Michael, we'll ask him to explain that difference in a second, uh, essentially took on not just one system, I think a couple of systems, and one backed not by not much more than principle and ideology. Um, a lot of people underestimated him, and if I could just seek your indulgence for a minute, um, a journalist wrote on, um, this is back 11 years ago now, Friday 5th of December 2003, uh, that a US, Mar this is upon the announcement by the Pentagon that David Hicks had finally been assigned legal counsel, a US Marine major with only five years experience as a lawyer will represent Australian Taliban suspect David Hicks against the might of the US government. Now, I know journalists aren't meant to sort of make comment in news stories, but I did in that case because, like everyone else, <laughs> Like everyone else covering the story thought, they haven't got a hope. Um, and <laughs> <coughs> however, a week later, <laughs> on December 11, uh, 2003, uh, the story, a lawyer assigned to defend David Hicks against the US government is not worried about the high-profile case. 
speaking to the Herald Sun on the eve of meeting Mr Hicks at Guantanamo Bay, Michael Murray said he was not concerned the case would be fought in the charged atmosphere of a US election year. It doesn't matter to me one bit. My commitment to David Hicks is not restrained by any political pressure at all. And I think that was the first indication uh, that this wasn't going to go as planned by certain people. So, um, <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, uh, Michael, welcome. Thank um, you. Can we just clear it up from the start? Dan, Michael, which did you prefer and why, uh, why, why the two names? I prefer Dan. I've always gone by Dan, but uh, my real name is Michael Dante Mori. Um, my great-grandmother's the only person who ever called me Michael. Um, I always was Dan, and so the first day of every school year was Michael Mori, and I'd go present, but i go by Dan. And uh, when the press release came out, the DO Department of Defense put out my legal name, you know, Major Michael D. Mori, and from then on, all of a sudden, I was Michael Mori again. And, <coughs> and uh, <coughs> so if I do something wrong, I blame it on the other guy. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Well, it's now 2014. It's seven years, basically, since David Hicks got out of Guantanamo. Um, the book's just been released. Can you fix the... <laughs> can probably start with that whole thing, of the whole thing that everyone seemed to underestimate. You weeded in the media. Um, not, a, not yourself personally, but probably the task ahead of you. I mean, as your book explains, <clears throat> these military commissions were essentially set, you know, a fit up uh, to get a preordained result. Can you tell yeah. us what it was and why you weren't worried well, <laughs> about doing what you did. I think there was a common misconception that somehow military lawyers were not independent, were not, would not fight hard for their, their clients, um, that we were seen as part of the system. And to be truth, in the Marine Corps, you know, you'd have a Marine lawyer, I mean, a Marine client who would come in, and sometimes they felt that way. You know, you're just another Marine officer, and I think they were easily... Uh, they saw the work we did. Uh, the commanders that sent their people to court-martial knew that we could be, defense lawyers could be a terrible uh, impediment to the outcome that they might have wanted. Um, but it was something that I wasn't worried about, and I think um, those that were at least um, within the Marine Corps defense system knew that we were going to do whatever was necessary to defend our client, regardless of what they were accused of, regardless of who they were, and that was sort of the ethos that I had been taught as a Marine lawyer. So I was kind of not offended when I saw that sort of appearance, but that's a common belief, not only in Australia, but in America, that sort of military lawyers are, don't really fight that hard. But that's because we don't talk in the media, usually. Until <laughs> <laughs> <So> this <laughs> case. <laughs> but you were fighting, you were fighting your, own, your own system, if you like. It was a military... The, these military commissions were established by the Pentagon under the presidential order by George Bush. The Pentagon, as you said, the appointing authority was the judge, jury and executioner, you weren't just fighting a government, you were fighting your own, your own department, you were fighting your own, your own superiors. You didn't at any stage think this could go pear-shaped career-wise? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing you learn about by being a military lawyer, defence lawyer, is that there's you know, not a lot of love lost for them because you can be an impediment and it's not necessarily the most career-enhancing job to be in the defence until that colonel gets in trouble and then he wants your help. Um, and, and then they like you, you're their best friend. Um, but it was, I thought I was gonna get involved in, in something that was gonna operate like a court-martial that I had, had experience and I had more than five years. See, the media gets it wrong. Um, <laughs> I, but, I, th uh, I think I corrected it the week <laughs> after. I think yeah. it was seven years. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it, it was something that I thought was gonna be something I was 
In one aspect, I thought it was going to oper operate like a court-martial, which I knew the pro procedure and the rules of evidence. But then as I got into the system and realized that this was not a court-martial, this was something, you know, it wasn't like a U.S. federal trial, it wasn't a U.S. court-martial, it was some new creation, I, I probably wasn't the best person qualified to represent mm. David. Um, I did not have any advanced training in the laws of war, international criminal law, which is really a lot of the basis of the knowledge that was needed. Um, and so I was, I, you know, I was scared there for a while at the beginning that I, I knew I was behind the power curve and I had a lot to learn and, 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 and learn about this whole new system. You also had fewer resources, didn't you? I mean, you, you write in the book how if, even when you were assigned, yeah. there was limited access and initially no access to your client. You were sort of, there was no charges to, yeah. charges had been laid. You didn't really understand how the system in which you were operating would be working because um, it, hadn't, it, was still being, it was still being designed, it, if you like. It was still being put together. I mean, by the time they brought in defence lawyers in the middle of 2003 and started recruiting for the defence office, the prosecution office had been stood up for about a year. The investigative task force putting the trying to put cases together had been operating almost since the beginning of 2002 when Guantanamo opened. Um, and there were initially five lawyers assigned to the defence office. And there were four clients, right? David Hicks was one of four. Um, and one of those four didn't want a lawyer, but he got two lawyers. I never quite understood that. But uh, <laughs> that's how it worked. And yeah, it took me a while asking for a second lawyer. Um, and I don't think I could have done anything in this case uh, as well as I was able to without the, you know, Josh Raytel in New York who took on mm -hmm. the case pro bono. Um, there was a firm in, in um, DC, in Chicago, Jenner Block, who came in again for free to work on the, the federal litigation in the US. Um, and then ultimately in, in Britain, we ultimately had some legal challenges in Britain and had a firm in Britain helping out. And then ultimately in Sydney at the federal court here with Brett Walker and Kate Eastman doing that and John North and David McLeod um, and, and just getting so many people to help and hmm. the academics that were willing to talk to me when I first started, you know, my law of war training, I don't know if you're gonna ask, but my law of war training, I had just been trained in August of 2001. Our law of war training was to read the Geneva Conventions, go through the Geneva Conventions, and in the Geneva Conventions at that time were not, you know, gray, it was black and white. This is what it said and this is what you did. Um, well, there's, there's a lovely passage yeah. in your book. <laughs> you say, before 9-11, there were no gray areas in the Geneva Conventions, just rules that had to be followed. We watched the Australian movie Breaker Morant and learnt not to shoot your prisoners <laughs> and a little bit about unfair trials. But, but I was by no means a specialist. Yeah. So yeah. That's you, what we do. We'd, we'd read the Geneva Conventions, watch Breaker Morant and discuss, you know, treatment of your prisoners. Um, but, but sort of in the context of there's times in war where there's this stress about what's going on and what the other side, the tactics they may be using, um, as well as fair trial. We just, you know, it was, did they receive a fair trial? And so all of a sudden then to be, you know, within a, two years I was sort of in that system thinking about that had been set up um, with a predicted outcome that mm. was desired from the administration was very odd. Can I, just maybe for people aren't au fait with the Hicks yeah. case, he was essentially captured in, in late 2001, post 9-11 obviously, uh, after interrogation somewhere we're not quite sure where, taken to Guantanamo with a, one of the initial detainees 002. So. Yep. Um, and then you weren't assigned until when, July 2003? Well, in July, I wasn't actually technically assigned in 03. I was, in July of 03, I was flown out to Washington, D.C. 
um, and told I was gonna be assigned. And then it turned out that an Australian delegation was coming to meet with the lawyer for Rumsfeld to discuss about Australia's perspective on the, on the commissions. At the same time, the British were out there hmm. negotiating whether or not it was gonna be acceptable for their citizens. And so it wasn't until November of 03 when the Howard government came out and said, we accept military commissions, hmm. and then the British came out saying, we don't. <laughs> Essentially, the dilemma, if you like, that the Howard government had, or that they contended, was that Hicks had broken no Australian law. And they didn't want him back, because politically, it, you know, you said it, it, was, it was politically unpalatable for, the, for Hicks to be allowed back to Australia. Was it Alexander Downer, who you say in your book, said, imagine him sitting in a cinema next yeah. to you, as if he's the worst of the worst. Right? Yeah. So he had broken no law in his home country. He had broken no American law. Yeah. So essentially, a system was being built to accommodate this, and, and a trial system set up to accommodate this, this uh, area, which no one would... Uh, and it's funny, not funny, but it's odd. You look at the initial statements by the um, Australian government back in 2002 and 2001, at the end when he was captured, it was, we expect him to be brought home and to be faced trial in Australia. And then I think they, the AFP did an investigation and realized he's not violated any law. And that somehow became the justification to leave him in America where... They knew he hadn't violated any law. And every other country, Western and otherwise, essentially got their people out of there. They didn't recognise the legitimacy. Lord Goldsmith, the British Attorney General. And this was a source of frustration. You, I remember for about the four years, you would say, well, why, if everyone else doesn't recognise these, 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 these trials as legitimate, why, you know, what is it with Australia? Did you, did... It, it, it's, it, it, well, the first was that America, right? It wasn't acceptable for an American citizen. So it was hard to see any country. And this is the John Walker Lind example, yeah. the, the American Taliban. Yeah. Oh. You can't? Sorry, ma'am. I'm just... oh, sorry. <laughs> you can't hear me? No, I'm just prompting. Oh, okay, sorry. all right. <laughs> <Here> you <go>. Sorry. <laughs> Good. Um, you couldn't, um, basically, it was that you know, it wasn't good enough for an American. So it was John Walker Lind who was captured in Afghanistan, was brought, you know, read his rights, taken to a US federal court and provided with a fair trial where, um, you know, David Hicks was taken to Gitmo. There was one American, Hamdi, who was captured. They didn't know he was an American and took him to Gitmo. And as soon as they found out he was an American, they took him out. Um, so it was that sort of initial hypocrisy that shocked me that any country would join. And then once Britain came out very strong publicly against the system, it was shocked me that, um, that Australia would then go along with it. To be fair, Canada allowed their, you know, Canada had one citizen down there, the 15-year-old who was 15-year-olds 15 15 at the time, and they left him there to go through the commissions. Um, you, you know, there was, there was a big challenge or, or, you know, debate in Canada about mm -hmm. that, but again, it was a very conservative government at the time, and they were supporting America, and I don't think um, the debate got very strong in Canada, too much about it, and he ultimately, again, was convicted, and he's back in Canada, still serving a sentence. You spoke of your, in, in the conclusion to the book, you speak of how you felt after Hicks departed Guantanamo and they flew him back to Adelaide, and you said you went back and you sat on your bed, and just, you know, and you said, I felt ashamed, mm -hmm. ultimately you felt ashamed. What, what, what? Ashamed I, of what? I, well, I think I, I, I sort of, when I first got involved, I thought I was going to be in a real court system. And then I sort of felt like we were just being there to be sort of part of the, 
the charade. You know, we were, they wanted us to be lawyers. They wanted us to go in and make objections and ask questions and write motions, but they knew that we weren't, you know, those motions were gonna all be denied and we weren't gonna get what we wanted. And so I remember the first hearing in November of 04 where we had lined up, you know, international legal experts, uh, a former judge at the Uni uh, International Tribunal for Yugoslavia, uh, Professor Tim McCormick from Australia, the Red Cross professor, um, Michael Schmidt, a U.S. Department of Defense expert on the law of war, um, and several other experts, Sharif Bassioni, who had been an expert consultant with the U.S. State Department, and they were all going to come in and say, this system is unfair, it, it violates all these international requirements, and these aren't real charges, and they simply just said, well, you can't bring them. Hmm. And I just sort of felt like, you know, there was not going to be any justice there. I wasn't going to get what we needed. And I, 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 I sort of felt like we were just there to be part of the show. And it felt very like we were being used in a way to go through the motions so that the media could report. And unfortunately, the media reported that. They, well, there's a motion. They've argued these motions. And they kind of, it was hard to get to the subtle injustice on, in the system in a, you know, in a news story. Now, I guess in the end, you know, Hicks did plead to this charge yeah. of providing material support for terror. Now, it's since been discredited. Yeah. Could you explain? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, he still, as of this day, stands convicted. But now, you say, you say in the book, yeah, it was a good deal, basically. There was a political deal stitched up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, everyone thinks that could you... Yeah, I mean, I think... I, I don't think anybody outside really believes it, but um, that it was some legitimate trial that happened. I just... Um, you know, obviously the, the, the process in 04 stopped um, and then it stalled. And it really, it, it's, it's when I was writing the book thinking, thinking back, what did I do in 2005? Because there was no military commission session for the entire year of 2005. Um, but I traveled to Afghanistan and, and, and we started the British uh, litigation and, uh, and I rewrote motions for the commission that was supposed to start in the November of 05 and rewrote everything. Um, and, that, and it got stopped again. Um, and ultimately, with the Supreme Court finding the military commission system unlawful in June of 06, that, that sort of coincided with, I think, the pendulum swinging. Um, as with, a turning point, you think? As a turning the, point. The U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, when the U.S. Supreme Court came out and said, not only, you know, we, everything the defense was saying was correct, I think that helped focus the media on the process, mm -hmm. and I helped um, um, the public opinion um, shift as well. In Australia? In Australia. You say you concentrated all your efforts on swaying opinion in Australia. Yeah. You, you rejected interviews. <laughs> well, in the US, because yeah, yeah, there's no yeah. point yeah. talking to the it's US. Hot in here. <laughs> Have a drink. I'm, I'm in the lights. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you tell us that, like, the US, in the, the yeah. US public didn't care yeah, about this. I, it was I, a, but that was one of the smart, well, smart, evilly smart things I think the Bush administration did, was by not putting Americans there, it really wasn't an issue in America. You know, Guantanamo was sort of the side news story. That was, you know, it, congressmen like to talk about it, whatever, but it had no real impact on Americans because there were no Americans there and there wasn't any fear that an American would go there. And um, that was very smart from the PR campaign for the Bush administration. And, and even after the Supreme Court found it illegal, Bush came out and said, look, we have secret prisons. Um, you know, we have Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, we have these people that are supposedly responsible for 9-11, and now, th now they were gonna import these terrorists to Gitmo to give it justification. And I think, um, in a way, that sort of guaranteed that Guantanamo would stay open into the next presidency. And, and I think we've seen that come true, that it, it became a huge problem for Obama um, to deal with this, these, these individuals that were supposedly responsible for 9-11. And 
um, the challenge he's had to try to close Guantanamo, try to use real trials. Has because been, they've got the, the real villains. There, because now they have the real villains, mm -hmm. and who is going to stand up for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Because you say in that conclusion, where you're, you're reflecting on the whole process after Hicks is gone, that not only has this traduced, if you like, the US justice system, but it hasn't delivered justice for the victims of 9 11. Do you think they spent too much time, wasted too much time on the knuckleheads, as Colonel Davis called Hicks and people yeah. like that, rather than. Well, I think that's part, that was part of the, my biggest frustration, too, is not having a system that worked effectively. And um, the fact that out of the, the, the first four charged, no one was actually charged with hurting anyone. And I, I sort of, um, again, as I got into the case and what my expectations were on, you know, who I was going to be assigned to, at least the PR statements from the Bush administration and Rumsfeld, right? These were the worst of the worst. Um, they were responsible for 9-11. And then all of a sudden... You know, I get the follow, I'm, you know, wait a minute, my guy hasn't hurt anybody. You know, in a way, as a defense counsel, I felt I was getting ripped off. You know, wait a minute. Well, this is not a terrorist. I, you know, I was promised a terrorist. Um, where's my terrorist? And, 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 and it's comical. And I, you know, I remember sitting there talking and explain, trying to explain this to someone. Um, but Jeff Lippert, who was the first defense lawyer who joined our team, and... He, again, he showed up, you know, he was stationed in Germany, but came over in, in, in August of 04, and I explaining to him, and he was doing the same thing. Okay, well, what is it? What do they got on him? I'm, no, this is it. Wait a minute, he had to have hurt someone, you know? It was sort of the perception, and in the military, you don't really question it that much. You sort of accept it, um, and you have faith in your politicians and all the media. The media was not, you, you know, and I think we even see it today. They're sort of, they're over there, and so that means they're bad, and... Um, and, and we don't go dig a little deeper in really what's going on because the issue was, uh, in a way, was it didn't matter who was in the cell, hmm. you know. Um, it mattered certain values that, that, that I thought um, the U.S. and the Bush administration were moving away from. Did, tell us about, let's go back to 03 when you first, was it 03 when you went, first went to? In December. December to see yeah. Hicks and you met him yeah. for the first time, you flew down. Just recall what that was like, and, and tell us the story about the name, the name badges as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the first time I went to Gitmo, which actually was in September, I went, we went down to the defense office, it, it was very surreal. And, you know, I had been on military bases, and I had been in military prisons and brigs, but just to, when you're driving out to the camps, and you, you hit the crest of one hill, and you can see these, these detention facilities that I had seen in pictures, and just the thought that America had this sort of remote detention center, um, was so odd to me. Um, and, and even at that point, that people had been there almost two years without charge, and that struck me as odd. Um, one of my, you know, one of my, I ran into a police officer one day, asked, what do you I do? And everyone would ask me, well, so what are you doing, you know? And I, in DC, and I'd had kind of, I'm defending one of those uh, terrorists at Gitmo, you know? Because <laughs> uh, not that I was ashamed, but you waited for some, angry action, and this police officer who had been a reserve Marine said, you know, it's wrong. It's wrong what they're doing. And I thought that should have been everyone's natural reaction, and I think it did. But it took a while, because after September 11th, I think there was such huge sympathy to the U.S., and everybody wanted to support the U.S. And I think the Bush administration took advantage of that, and that they, did, they, they went to such an extreme. Um, but I think, you know, it was politics, so much... That's the thing that bothered me the most, that it wasn't a justice system, it was a political system. And, um, but the name badges, the name sorry, badges. I, get, I ramble, sorry. Um, 
But the name, it was, yeah, I, I, the first, uh, so when I was supposed to go in the camps, I had to, in the, in the Marines, you've got your name on your uniform, your last name. I had to cover it up with tape. Because I know, he wasn't supposed to know my name, but I didn't, I didn't quite understand that. Because I could tell him my name. Hi, I'm Major Morian. Uh, but I have, and then, you know, I'd have to, exp or when I interviewed other detainees, you know, I, I interviewed other detainees in preparation for the trial. And again, they'd make me cover my name up. And yeah, why I, was this? I don't, it was, I don't know. I wasn't worried that Al-Qaeda was going to come after me. Um, you know, I'm not sure how I was supposed to convince this detainee I wanted to interview that I really was a defense lawyer, but I'm covering up my name and I'd, uh, you know, that was quite a challenge, trying to go in and convince people that had been locked up there for three or four years that, no, I'm really a defense lawyer, and I'm here trying to investigate the system and what's been happening to you. Uh, will you tell me? And some were just so institutionalized, they couldn't, um, they couldn't even comprehend that there was a defense lawyer there. You had Stephen Kenny with you. He was yeah. an Adelaide civil rights lawyer, yeah. amongst other things. Um, did... Did Hicks trust you at the first meeting? Do you think you won his trust? Well, I don't know yet. You have to ask him. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, look, I, look, I, um, you know, as I write in the book, you know, I don't think there was any concern um, with that. I mean, Hicks had more in common with the, the guardsmen out there and myself than any, it, most people hmm. locked up there. And, um, and he, I remember him saying, you know, he's glad he got a Marine because Marines are the best, but <laughs> misconception now. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, I, look, I was very lucky. I wasn't dealing with a language bearer that mm -hmm. some of the other defense lawyers had to go through, you know, working solely through an interpreter with their client. Um, and that was a real challenge. I, before I knew I was getting an Australian, I was, cons you know, that was going to be a big issue. And so I was happy to get the Australian, you know. And what, and what was it like, the conditions he was being held in? Well, did, it, did you feel, I mean, I, I, I assume they were Spartan. They were Spartan, but I mean, it, 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 particularly when I, when I first went in, he was being held in what was called Camp Echo, and it was basically solitary. Mm -hmm. And he'd been at, without access to sunlight for over five months. Um, and it was shocking. And again, and I don't know, I've always wondered, was that just some, you know, uh, sergeant who set that, you know, he only gets his exercise at night? Or was it a systematic decision made from on high down? You, you never know. And I think I try to get across in the book is sometimes, you know, you start thinking it's government conspiracy or intent, but then you realize, you know, until you can rule out government incompetence, um, it's, it's hard to get to conspiracy. And unfortunately, you know, military commissions was a perfect example of government incompetence at the highest levels. Um, you know, these are the same people people who created and, and, and controlled the military commission system were the same people who were running our war efforts. Hmm. And you start wondering, you know, these, what, how are these people making these decisions? And, and, and that bothered me too, because I hate to admit it, I kind of was politically naive. I was in the military my whole adult life. I did what I, you know, um, and yeah. Because the bookend of that, I guess, his treatment got somewhat better over years, is a comment slightly better, and the Australian consulate was able to bring, it, bring it, him things. It, it, yeah, but, sorry, towards the end, you're right, he was put back in those sorts yeah. of conditions, and when you decided to take the plea bargain, which is, um, you write that, you know, you didn't think it was going to survive if, 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 if you decided to fight that yeah. challenge. Can well, you that, elaborate? Yeah, I mean, he was, so when I saw him, and, and the consulate was great, you know, the member of DFAT was great in trying to change that, and we were able to do that. We were able to improve his food, get him access to sunlight. Um, and, you know, sometimes I felt my whole job was just to bring mail in to try to give him some connection with the outside world. And the consulate was really great and put forward the effort to help in that area. Um, but as it progressed and we got into two, the beginning of 2006, for whatever reason, uh, they put him into solitary again. 
for 23 hours a day without access to sunlight, really. Maybe he got exercise one hour a day or get out of that cell. And Was that to break him? I don't, I, you know, again, I don't know. If the U.S., you know, at Gitmo, you could initially, it was Camp X-Ray, which most of you are probably familiar with, the pictures of what looks like dog kennels. Um, but they were only used till about April of 2002. Not that it makes any better, but um, until they built Camp Delta, which was the more open air, access to the natural environment, mesh cages where people could talk to someone next to them and see what's going on. If they spoke the same language, they could talk to each other. And then Camp Echo, which became these sort of solitary huts. But, uh, you know, I remember in, in 05 going down there and seeing them starting to build these mini maximum security prisons and going, that's, you don't want to be in there. Um, because that was just going to be 20, you know, 23 hour day lockdown by yourself. Um, and ultimately he got put in there. And that was, you know, I think one of the things that just, I don't know how people have endured. And to think that people have been there, you know, it's 2014 and some have been there still since 2002. You know, ended to the beginning of January 2002 at Gitmo. And in these some Spartan conditions, it's, it's uh, shocking. And I think you sort of imply at the end that Hicks would have probably killed himself and taken his own life had he had to spend you know, a significant more time. Yeah, I mean, he that talks was, about that, that and he talks about that in his book about that and his feeling that desperation. And, um, you know, and, and I think not ultimately at the end, but we were, ha there were, there was always sort of these successes in courts, right? The, the, the we had win in federal court in 04, the Supreme Court said, uh, you know, detainees that get mo could go to the federal court system, right? So it was two, two years from 02, the beginning of 02 to June of 04, just to even get the U.S. federal courts to say, you can go to our courts. Um, and then it took another two years to get the Supreme Court to rule on the legality of the military commissions. And it didn't, none of those cases got anyone free. It just said, basically, start over. Um, and then it took another two years, ultimately in 2008, when the Supreme Court ruled on another issue from Guantanamo. But it was a very slow process. And so there was really no hopes of getting justice for him. And um, every time there was a win in a court system, either in the US or in the UK with his British citizenship or even in Australia, it sort of felt like you won for a minute, but then the reality was it was it didn't can, change anything. Can you tell us the story of the British citizenship? It's, it's a good, great anecdote. <laughs> is that a good... Is that a good <laughs> um, so his mother was British, and, and we um, obviously with the stance that the British government had taken on the, the lawfulness of the commissions, um, he was entitled to be uh, registered as a British citizen. And um, so I got the application all filled out, <laughs> got my credit card for the, for the passport fee, um, and called up the British embassy and said, I'd like to speak to the person um, that's handling the British detainees at Guantanamo. Of course, hang on a second. Um, <laughs> And I got someone back, and they said, you know, uh, hi, who are you? I said, who I am? And I said, I think you still have a British citizen. Guantanamo's like, no, we don't. Um, and I said, well, can I meet you? I'd like to bring you an application uh, for David Hicks. And uh, I, me and Mick Griffin, another Australian lawyer who was there at the time, went to the embassy, and out came poor Simon. Um, and I handed him the, the application and explained, look, you know, his mom was born in, in Croydon, England, and uh, we think he's the missing Earl to Croydon, fifth in line for the throne. <laughs> He, he did not look in the mood to, for jokes about royalty. Um, but I said it with a nice straight face. Um, you and, wanna, yeah. You want to read oh, that bit? Oh, you're going to make me read it? No, I don't want to read it. Sorry to interrupt, man, but Dan wrote at this stage, <laughs> as he flipped through the application, he looked like I had just dropped a large pile of shit on his lap. <laughs> 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 I did say that, sorry. It's in the book. It's okay, it's in the book. <laughs> I didn't write it. That Michael Morey did. Um, 
But uh, it, it was, but you know, it was like trying to figure out what other avenues we could do because the commission system wasn't. And the, the British, we were very successful in two different cases. Um, and, and I think it was sort of this strange legal challenges outside the commission that were successful in applying pressure on, on governments. In a way, it's, it's sort of odd to think how this guy from Salisbury, South Australia, ended up being known by three leaders of, you know, the leader of the UK, Blair, Bush, and Howard all had to know who David Hicks were and deal with him. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure Blair wasn't too happy when he got the telegram from the, the embassy in Washington telling him, you know, uh-oh, there might be another Brit there. Um, did he get the citizenship? He got the, yes, he, he, I think he's the only detainee to get a fax, and he got a fax saying you're a British citizen, but then he got another one saying we're taking it away. Right. Um, straight afterwards. Straight afterwards. Right. And so, you know, and then it was that scramble just to, just to try to find lawyers over there that were willing to help and take, again, take an unpo- unpopular cause on. Um, you know, think, think by 2005, what did we happen in the, in the July of 2005, right? There's the, the bombings um, that happened and... Um, Never a good PR event when you're trying to get <laughs> sympathy for someone who's been accused as a ter- terrorist. And, um, but it, it took a legal strategy and, and you know, putting pressure. Um, and I think the public, um, um, through the media as well, and I, uh, dealing with the media was something very, I'd never done before uh, as a military person. That was probably the first, I, I don't know say, ethical slash you know, strenuous decision. Does the military lawyer participate in this political th- and the media thing, which we didn't do. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a civilian lawyer. Josh, he could do it. Steve, Kenny could do it. And was there a benefit for having the military lawyer? And I think the Bush administration's sort of response to anybody who criticized it was to say, you're unpatriotic and just dismiss you. And I think it was, they couldn't do that to someone in uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that ultimately was why, okay, it's worth doing. Um, but I wish I could say I had some strategy worked out very early, early on, but I, <laughs> I didn't. It was effective, though. You came, I mean, the, I, for want of a better word, there's a certain obsequiousness in Australia towards the US at that time, you know, in conservative circles at least. So the sight of a Marine, you know, with your Jarhead haircut, yep. and you deliberately wore your uniform. In, yeah, I had to wear, I, the funny yeah. thing is I had to. The Marine Corps said, if you appear in the media, you've got to wear a uniform. But that worked, didn't it? That worked as a... You, I mean, it, helped, it showed that it wasn't just a left cause or whatever cause, that it was... It, uh, it brought a, a, a legitimacy? I think it? the media... It gave so the media covered it more, possibly, and I think... Um, you know, I, I sort of felt like, and I initially, we were dismissed, you know. I remember, remember after my first pre- press conference, Ruddick saying, well, that's what defense lawyers say, you know. Um, and, but, it, it, you know, it was good when the, the prosecutor emails came out because three prosecutors had, within the system, had basically quit and written very lengthy emails about the problems in the system. And so when that story came out there, look, it wasn't just the defense lawyers, it was the prosecutors um, that, were, that were raising the issues that we had seen and then... Um, These were the leaked emails. Le- the, the leaked emails. The leaked emails. The, it wasn't WikiLeaks. It was well, the, like, the prosecutors said the whole process was cooked and yeah. it was, uh, you know, evidence was deliberately withheld and... You know, yeah. and they just couldn't be part of the system anymore. It was shocking to see everything I suspected actually confirmed by people who were actually, you know, in, in the prosecutor's side. Um, and look, the, the, I think the public swing, you know, it was a tribute to a lot of other people too as well. You know, there was get up. There was a lot of politicians, you know, the good thing, they looked, there were a lot of politicians... Um, obviously, in the, you know, in the Labor and the Greens, very early on, Bob Brown and Senator Linda Kirk from South Australia, you know, they were, they were, they were vocal about the issue. Um, 
but of course the coalition sort of ignored them. And, um, but I think even as we got in 05 and 06, there were many members of the coalition government, um, backbenchers that were you know, starting to raise the issue. Um, and part of that was because people in Australia were writing them letters hmm. from, their, from their areas, um, raising a concern. And um, I remember in, um, in the, in near the end of 06, I, was in a, I did a talk at Brisbane like this, which so many people came to, and again, that helped. Um, I was shocked that people wanted to come here and listen what I had to ramble on about. But uh, I remember I, after I'd done the talk and I was chatting with some Brisbane, Brisbane police officers who were kind of upset about what was going on, and my friend uh, Rebecca Snyder, who was the second lawyer that came on the case, you know, she taps me on the shoulder and says, Dan, keep it down. I'm like, what? What's going on? She's like, Barnaby Joyce is telling the media to bring Hicks home. You're right. <laughs> what? <laughs> Where did that come from? Um, you know, but he, uh, he did that publicly and sort of probably suffered some consequences in that party room afterwards. But it took a lot of people voicing um, dissent over it and saying this isn't right and whether it was in, you know, um, Dick Smith was very, uh, you know, mm -hmm. came out and, and again, it, you know, it's not necessarily about David, it's about the process and what an Australian deserves. Um, and that was a, a, an important voice. And I think Terry, everyone could, could relate with Terry. Mm -hmm. um, David McLeod, another Australian lawyer, people could, you know, he was a, an Air Force wing commander. The government could, can't ignore that, you know, he's not gonna be, and the media will listen to that. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, the, the uh, it was, it snowballed and it started and I think, you know, I, I remember, um, so in, after the Supreme Court found the system illegal in June of 06, and Bush's response was to import terrorists and to ram a, the Military Commission Act through the Republican-controlled Congress before the midterm election, um, in which they did. And, and I sort of scratched my head and said, oh my God, you know, I'm sort of back in 2004 again, mm -hmm. where, you know, there's no charges, he's gonna be charged again, and where, um, you know, it always been talked about, you know, 10 years, 20 years, um, to all of a sudden someone to say, well, how about days he can leave? Um, was, was astonishing. And I, I wish I could say this was the magic um, that, that achieved that, but I think it was, it was everything um, culminating um, through the court process, the public opinion, and in some politicians sticking their, mm -hmm. their necks out um, mm -hmm. that ultimately put pressure on this. And that showed it was a political system. Right? I mean, hmm. no. earlier on, the politics were working against me, and all of a sudden, the politics are now on my side and working against the prosecutors. I'm not going to attest to that. <laughs> One of the things that surprised me in the book, which I didn't know about, you know, was the extent to which you travelled the world mm. uh, to, to, A, build your case, yep. find witnesses. Can you tell us about, I mean, I didn't know until I read this, you'd gone to <laughs> Afghanistan um, to find people who had fought alongside him or, you know, to, to get characteristic. Can you tell us yeah, the yeah, lengths I, you went to to do that? And, and yeah. did, the, did the military facilitate holiday. this? Or did... No, I, I had a beautiful holiday <laughs> in Afghanistan. Um, uh, but, it, you know, part of the whole big issue in this was whether or not the people were entitled to prisoner of war status. Um, and the only way to do that was to try to get evidence about the conflict there and, you know, did they wear distinctive items? Well, what did the Northern Alliance think? They're the ones that, you know, were really in combat with them and was there a chain of command? You know, I remember early on Rumsfeld coming out saying, you know, they don't, they're not qualified and uh, they don't POW status because they don't have a chain of command. And then, of course, General Myers would talk about an attack saying, we've just taken out the Taliban's chain of command, you know, <laughs> command and control centers. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so there, that, that was checked off. We had that. But it was about wearing uniform and about having... Um, 
distinctive emblems and could the enemy tell you apart? And so I had to go to Afghanistan to try to find people that had, had from the Northern Alliance um, that had fought and could talk about the battle and sort of my hope was to bring them to Gitmo to explain, no, this was a legitimate, you know, sort of battle. There was the trenches with the Taliban, the trenches with the Northern Alliance. Um, David Hicks wasn't there, but you know, um, uh, so I spent, I spent about two weeks going through Pakistan and, and Afghanistan and going up to the north and finding former ta uh, uh, t Northern Alliance soldiers who were like, yeah, we knew exactly who the Taliban were. They wore their turbans like this and we did this. And uh, as well as to find witnesses to talk about how the U.S. operated, to say it's not a crime to fight in a war if you're not wearing a Western-style uniform. That's what the Northern Alliance did, you know. It's what our special forces did. It's what our CIA did. So, it, uh, yeah, so I did a lot of traveling, and I did... How, how uh, did you know? I mean, Afghanistan would have been chaos then. Yeah. I mean, how did you well, know where to go, where to look, who to talk? Was, just, well, I just, it was sort of, again, I, fixes with I got a flight into Kabul, and <laughs> no, and it was sort of, again, you know, the prosecutors, when they went to Afghanistan or, or anything for a site exploitation visit, they went with, you know, multiple agents and armed convoys, and I, I had to call up and try to, you know, make contact with the lawyers there and say, I'm coming on an event, it's me, can I, um, you know, can you get me a car? <laughs> can I borrow a weapon? Um, and I sort of picked people up along the way. I, uh, I got this army lawyer who had helped me find me a place to stay in Kabul, and he was stationed in Kabul for a period of time, and he's like, oh, you're going up there, can I go with you? Sure, come along. And uh, I ran into another guy who had um, actually helped the AFP in their investigation. He was now in Kabul, um, and he's like, hey, do you need this extra security? Sure, come along. And so we had our sort of, you know, Three Stooges traveling the northern uh, uh, with our five-man Australian army. I mean, uh, Australian Afghan army, uh, you, you know, oh, in their little jeep, mm -hmm. and us in our little uh, Toyota Land Rover or whatever. And um, it, it was, it was, you know, I found it as adventurous a military person. I wanted to go over to Afghanistan. I didn't find Osama bin Laden. Sorry. Uh, or I would have had that 25 million. It was in but, Pakistan. Uh, yeah, it was in Pakistan, <laughs> darn it. But, uh, you know, it was. I, I think I traveled in 2004, I traveled 200 days. Um, and, you know, that was going to Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kosovo, Germany, um, you know, dealing with experts and coming to Australia. And then and in 05 and 06, I traveled like 130, 140 days out of the year. Yeah. Um, and, and just going to Gitmo, just even getting to go to Guantanamo was a logistical, you know, uh, nightmare. You had took at least a three-day trip for a two-hour visit. And the plane with no toilet. In the plane with no toilet, <laughs> which didn't. <yeah. laughs> um, we, we'll throw it open to questions in, in, in a few minutes. If, if anyone's uh, got, are any there are people lined up already. Already? No, that's, that's, that's the lights playing tricks. Oh. There's, there's a microphone there and one there. So if you if, you, if you've got a question, you'd like to ask Dan or Michael or both. Oh, they've lit it. Um, just side no up questions. to the mic. Um, but a couple of things. Um, the book itself, the book writing process, yes. is seven years. Sort of since it's all. Did you keep notes? Because it's quite. It's very detailed. See, they cut all the detail. I think out of it. Well, <laughs> I mean, did you keep a diary? Oh, oh, look, period? I had look for my travel. I had all my travel orders, things like that. Um, it was very, um, you know, notes from the case, the motions I've written. It was all sort of in boxes that I was dying to shred uh, and stop lugging around with me. But yeah. So we have our first. Okay. Yeah. Hi there, I've got two questions. Oh no. Yes. Or one statement really. Okay. Mm -hmm. With David Hicks, would you say a lot of the uh, support for him swung around because of his mental state, right towards the end? I, I would say I thought I think it swung. 
a, a large part due to Terry and people realizing that there was a real human there. And I think it also, I think it finally got a home that it moved beyond David in the principle of how an Australian should be treated. And they, you know, there was not a second class status for Australians compared to Americans or, or British. And my second question is, what is the status now of Guantanamo Bay? Um, it's still open for business. Um, it's unfortunately, they're down about 160 detainees. Half, half have been cleared for release, um, but they don't have a country that will take them. So they're similar to the immig uh, immigration detainees here that have, been, that have been found to be refugees, but they have an ASIO um, negative assessment on them. So Australia won't allow them in, but there's no other country that will take them. Um, and out of the other half, one group is sort of designated for military commissions they'd like to prosecute. And the other little group is too dangerous to release, but they'll never be prosecuted. Um, just, and the fellow you were talking about, Sheikh Mohammed, yes. who they believe was part of the 9-11, mm -hmm. um, why don't they take him, or isn't it more honorable to take him up into the US, charge him and prosecute him up there for a crime committed there? Yeah, absolutely, and I think when Obama came in, um, I don't know if you remember, do you remember Eric uh, Holder, the Attorney General said, he announced, we're gonna have these, we're gonna take KSM and these alleged 9-11 conspirators, bring them to New York and try them in the federal court system. That was met with a, such a strong opposition by the Congress and they basically defunded it. They wouldn't, you know, they control the purse strings and they took away the ability to fund any travel or bringing in the United, uh, to the United States of any detainee. Um, and it would have been much better because he probably could be prosecuted and convicted. Um, just to compare it, if you, Osama bin Laden's son-in-law was captured in March of 2013, charged in a U.S. federal court, can, and was convicted by March of 2014, it, it, um, which shows you within a year from capture to conviction. Um, the question is, is, I'm not sure why they won't, and I think the reason that Obama's had so much difficulty is just so many people within the US Congress and the Department of Defense and different arms of the government that whose careers are tied up in Guantanamo in the military commissions being a success, that they can't let it be shut down tomorrow because it's almost an admission that it was the wrong thing, right? The media would jump on them tomorrow. You've been supporting military commissions, now they've been scrapped. Why did you do that, Senator? Um, so I think there's that political inertia to keeping it open because politically uh, it's advantageous to many. Does that answer your question? So you have a question? Good evening, Dan. Uh, two questions, please. Okay. Uh, I've listened with great interest about the political environment and the nature of the, of the tribunals. Very interesting. But two questions more specifically. What did, did David Hicks actually do? And secondly, how did you feel about that defending him? And obviously you thought he was innocent. Yeah. How did you feel when you had to accept a guilty verdict at the end? Well, okay, what did he actually do? Uh, you need to read his book. To, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I try not to in my book really tell his story. That's his story to tell. I, I'm not sort of, I don't, I don't go into why was he over there, um, um, but sort of deal with the legal ramifications. But you know, it was sort of based on if you were over there, then you were committing a crime. And that's really what the Bush administration tried to do, right? Capture these people, and if you're in Afghanistan, we capture you, we call you an enemy combatant, because you were, but not a prisoner of war. Um, and then to create a crime, that if you were over there and an enemy combatant, that's a war crime, but it really wasn't, because there's no crime to fight. 
You know, there's no part of the law of war that says don't shoot a soldier. It says don't shoot a soldier that's wounded or captured. Um, but they really wanted to make it be a crime just to being over there, and that just wasn't the case. Um, how did I feel? Um, well, uh, look, uh, I never in a million years would have imagined ultimately what they said. He can go home in 60 days. I don't think there, there was, and that, that also it was an Alford plea, which in the U.S. is basically, you're not pleading guilty, you're just saying that you would be found guilty. Um, and I think, um, would I have been like to have been the lawyer that fought it out and took this, you know, fought it, he gets convicted, sentenced to 40 years, and I take it to the Supreme Court and we, you know, get it thrown out seven years later? Sure, but it's not about me and, you know, it was about the, him and trying to get him to survive, and I thought the ultimate goal from the whole all along was just how do you get him out? Um, and if it was through this political charade that nobody really gave any credibility to, it was, there, there was no, there was no, how do I say it? I don't think there was any decision to be made. When they say, do you want to leave in 60 days? Stand in your head, spit wooden nickels, admit to the JFK killing, and get out. <laughs> I, th I think you said in your book the, yeah. the, the cause was never bigger than the client. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah. Right, the cause can't be bigger than the client. Yeah. Uh, Ma'am, we have a question yes, up here. Hi, um, I just have one question. Um, in your opinion, do you, think, um, do you think the prison will ever close? <laughs> Phil, I think you asked me. I, look, I only think it's going gonna, it's gonna to close when it also becomes politically good for the Republicans to close it. Because it's going to take the cooperation of both the Democrats and the Republicans. And it, would it shock me to see, you know, if it near, the, getting closer to the election, if there's a solution so that it doesn't become a, a burden for the next Republican president, because that's who they, you know, will predict will win. So Jeb Bush, when he wins, and becomes the next... <laughs> right? You know, you know. <laughs> uh, He's the smart one. He's the smarter brother. He's the smarter um, <laughs> but, I, uh, but I do think that's the case. It's going to have to become politically good for both sides, so that those that were supporters can come out still looking like they did the right thing by supporting this for so many years. We have a question up here, madam. Uh, some years ago, I can't remember when it was, you spoke after a performance of a, a show called On a Bound by yeah. Legs on the Wall. I was here at the Opera House, yeah. I can't remember which theatre, but I remember I, I, I generally only weep when I think things are unjust, and I was in absolute tears both after the show and your speech. Oh. So it's wonderful to have you here now, and at least some things have been solved. But I was intrigued, I haven't had a chance to read the book, but the title seems to be In the Company of Cowards, is that right? And in, could you just elaborate, because we probably know who you think the coward, who, who the cowards are, but I'd be interested for some sort of synopsis from you. Okay, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. someone said, is it in the company of Howards? No, it's... Um, <laughs> Uh, sorry, I shouldn't take cheap shots. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, look, it, it's the easy answer is, oh, it's the, it's the head politicians that were responsible. But I think, it's, for me, it was everybody else that went along with it. Right? Not that Bush, 
and couldn't have set up this up without so many people going along with it. So many people, it couldn't do away with the Geneva Conventions without the leaders of the US military just turning their back on the Geneva Conventions. I mean, the US military, when we started capturing people, we're starting to process them as prisoners of war, and we're gonna hold the Article 5 tribunals, which is what they're called, to determine their prisoner of war status. So all of a sudden, Rumsfeld and, and Bush come out and say, no, they're not, I've made the decision. There was not any pushback uh, from the military. And when they started setting up this corrupt system, so many people went along with it. Um, and so there were a lot of people that had to go along with it for this to happen. It wasn't just the, the key politicians. Uh, and I think that's the way I felt. I felt I was always, I wasn't, everybody else was in on the joke but me. Um, and I, and I, it really bothered me that people just, whatever it was, said, all right, I'll go along with it. But it was, look, you know, look what happened to General Shinseki, who at the beginning of the Iraq War, whatever it was testifying, was saying it's gonna take us 10 years and 100,000 troops, and he was fired. Hmm. Um, you know, if you, and, but he was right. Um, you know, so th I think that, does that answer your question? It's, 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 it's a lot of nameless, na nameless people who went along with it. A lot of bad things can't happen um, in a government unless there's a lot of people that go along with it. And do you, do you put the Australian government in that, that category as well? Yeah. For its acquiescence? With you? <laughs> yeah. uh, the then Australian No, no, I, well, let me, how do I say this? Look, I, was, I thought the AFP did a great job. I was always, they were very supportive of both prosecution and defense giving us what they could. The DFAT and the consulars provided the support that they could. Um, but at the top. At, at the, but, but they weren't, you know, the ministers who are controlling um, the, the ultimate decision. So, um, you know, I don't know what advice Ruddick was getting on the legality of the commissions, whether he chose to follow it um, is another question. Sir. I heard your statement uh, in regard to your first impressions of seeing a detention centre. Yeah. And flicking forward now a number of years and looking where Australia is in terms of our detention centres in, on Manus Island and uh, Nauru and our treatment of refugees today, would you just like, as a reference point from where you're at uh, then and today, give us some comments in regard to where Australia is today? <laughs> you really want me to get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> Look, I've never visited any of, of the detention centers. I've seen the pictures, um, uh, and you know, obviously, the, the law firm I'm with, I'm with Shine Lawyers is litigating some of these issues, and George Newhouse, who's here, is in the high court next week on the, the, the individuals in the Sri Lankans who are locked up on the, uh, the, the vessel for over a month. Um, it's a, I don't think you can, how do, you, how do, you, how do I say this uh, tactfully? <laughs> It, it, the refugee issue has some similarities, but it's an issue that's also being dealt with everywhere in the world. I, I, I wouldn't want to say it's the same thing as Gitmo. Gitmo was such a, a, an, an aberration, you know, especially that, I mean, part of Gitmo is saying that we feel people, we're going to have people, we're going to detain them indefinitely and never try them. I mean, that's the position for a group of people. They're just going to stay there. Um, the, the refugee... You know, obviously there's the conditions of detention and how, where do you, how do you treat someone and how do you treat kids and how do you treat families that have sought refugees and refugee status and are actually refugees and how do you resettle them in the process? And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I want to <laughs> go much farther and <laughs> take a political well, can I, can position. I, I can't vote here anyway, so. 
I think I'd just yeah. jump in. Just maybe a, a more contemporary comparison is the three tranches of terror laws, the new terror laws that the Australian Parliament, one has passed, one is under review, and there's a third one coming. Now, we go, I find a lot of similarities between now and 10 years ago insofar as there's a new terror threat, um, there's a, you know, there's substance to it and there's hysteria to it. It's hard to, you know, find the line. But the, are you are you okay with what the, the Abbott government has done with these terror laws? You have a problem. I mean, I'm not equating them to the military yeah. commission. I don't think on yeah. anything near that level. But um, principally, do you see there's a problem maybe with? Well, I mean, clearly there's new a new hysteria about this war. I mean, and you see war on terror still being used for what's going on. And uh, and I would hope that we learn from what happened in, after 9/11 to the media might have a little bit more straight and get to the real story, but. Um, the laws are trying to develop to catch up in some way. How do you deal with people going off to, um, to fight in these other conflicts? You know, if you think about it, and when Australians, and there's a, there's a monument to 70 Australians in Canberra to, who went over and fought uh, against Franco and the Spanish, you know. Um, but they were on the right side, if you, right? I mean, people would say, well, that, but they were on the right side. And so I think... Should we be concerned? Definitely. The, U, you know, the U.S. has laws that prohibits people from going to certain countries. You know, I can't go to Cuba. I can go to Guantanamo, but not Cuba. Um, and you can, you know, and there's restrictions on supporting certain organizations. Um, it, it's, but yet these new laws are always, it's security being balanced against individual liberty and, and, and freedom. And I think right now the sort of scrutiny that's going on is, is, is a positive thing. Mm. Right there, um, the new ter the terror laws in 05 when they were passed, I think they had, didn't have as much scrutiny and concern. Mm. Where now it is, mm. and so I think that's a good thing. Consequence uh, but, of yeah. 2001. I think mm. so, mm. and I think they'll be watched, and it's hard to see how new laws will operate until you, you know, in the abstract, you can talk about concerns in this, but until you see them put into and utilized in a real case. I mean, we've seen some of these terror arrests and people being arrested for um, preparing to go over and fight, and. You know, I, I, I think it's hard to tell whether they're actually being very effective or, or whether they're just, um, you know, something to say that we're doing something. It's a challenge. Any questions, sir? Um, you seem to be fairly disenfranchised with the system <laughs> a bit. Um, if you had the chance to go back in time and tell your younger self uh, to never be a military lawyer oh, and no. not do the things that you did... Um, what would you do? Oh, well, <laughs> well, I wouldn't tell me. I'm not, I'm not disenfranchised with the military court-martial system. I'm very proud of that. I thought that was, you know, um, I, in the U.S., if you want to go before court, you want to go before court-martial, not a federal court, because um, the U.S. court-martial system has far more protections in dealing with discovery and the prosecutor turning over information and fair trials, I think. Now, that I may be biased, because that's what I predominantly worked in. Um, I don't think I'd go back and tell myself to do... Well, I, there's probably a lot of things I could have done differently during the Hicks case um, had I known how it was going to play out and drag on. You know, I, I sort of always felt like there's a hundred holes to dig and I got to get going. I didn't know that it was going to take nine months to get him charged. And I didn't know it was then going to, you know, would have the last commission hearing in 04 and not have another commission hearing until March of 07. You know, it sort of just stumbled along. Um, but I still would, I think I still would join the military if I could go back. I've enjoyed it. I had a great career. Um, Obviously, the opportunity to come to Australia came as I retired. 
um, and, I'm, and I'm glad I've done that and have enjoyed my time at Shine Lawyers and uh, met some wonderful people when I was doing the Hicks case and those friendships have extended um, to here now and um, maybe I'll get permanent residency, maybe I won't. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but it's, it's uh, you know, in a way I don't really think I did anything that special that another lawyer that was assigned wouldn't have done. Um, I, think, I, I would hope that any Marine lawyer that had been assigned would do it, and many of the other defense lawyers, you know, fought just as hard um, um, to do what they could. Um, some, some had clients that were from countries that didn't have the, any political sway with the U.S., um, or their country didn't care about them. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think you're selling yourself short, mate. Um, yeah. Did, but you, you write in the book how obviously this thing went for far longer than anticipated and it did impact your career. You were, can you tell the audience how you, you were overlooked for pr promotion on several occasions yeah. and you were warned by friends that they were, you know, they were working up, they were out to get you? Can you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were out to get me. Yeah. Uh, after I did my first press conference in January of 2004, a month or so later, I get a call from a friend saying, hey, let's meet for dinner. Okay. Um, and then sit down, and there was sort of this, uh, do you know you're under investigation? What? No, I didn't know I was under investigation. And then another friend called me, do you know you're under investigation? Um, and they were investigating what my statements were in the media. Um, and basically, the DOD general lawyer, head lawyer had sent it to the Navy, said, investigate these. And they ultimately came back saying, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't think I had. But it showed how the subtle type of um, pressure... But it, it, you know, it also invigorated me that mm. they... Obviously, it was getting to them, right? Because <laughs> I, I don't think they... Well, they wanted us to be lawyers and, in, in, like I explained, you know, get in the ring and fight and put on the show. I don't think they expected when they thought of the system that anybody would listen to us, right? Mm. We were just pushed off as defense lawyers. And so I think, especially in 06... Uh, they weren't very happy every time I came to Australia. And, uh, you know, the chief prosecutor got very angry and very upset and ultimately accused me of violating the Uniform Code of Military Justice, but I didn't. But, um, so it was, it was sad that it got to that point, but, you know, I think I had committed myself and I wasn't going to... And how many times did you miss out on promotion throughout the... Three times. Three times. Yeah, I'd, I got... I, I got after Hicks, I went to California for a couple months to Iraq for a tour in Iraq back to California, and I was preparing to retire because as a major, you have to retire once you're first eligible, and I was, and I got a call someday, and some colonel said, oh, congratulations on being promoted. I said, D sir, do you have the right person? <laughs> uh, and uh, then I got the call after that saying, do I still want to be the judge in, judge in Hawaii? And, yeah, you know, my in Hawaii, you're the judge. You set your own schedule. My boss is in Japan, what, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I, it, you know, good things happened. And, uh, yeah, so I, and I enjoyed my time in the military. But. Terrific. Sir? Yeah. Good evening. Um, this question really follows up on the last one. Uh, I think you described earlier that you felt you were a little naive in the context that had arisen, the defence you had to give to David. Um, and in the manner you described the situation, I can possibly understand what you mean, which is you just wanted to do your job and that you saw doing your job as a proper defence for someone and that justice would be served. Now, as it happens, you've also <laughs> indicated that the situation went well beyond things you expected. 
And I'm just interested to hear you reflect on uh, that situation, your reaction to that situation as it arose, and what uh, sort of um, the, the manner in which you went about finding this little bit extra, which was needed for the new situation. Um, you'll have to buy the book now. Um, <laughs> look, I, I, it wasn't like a, you know, I, I initially said, oh, this system's corrupt. It, it took me to, you know, reading the rules, trying to figure out um, what was going on, seeing how they, you know, had created this system, took away all rights and protections, had created a crime that really made, basically said, if Bush is, if you got captured in Afghanistan and, and Bush labeled you an enemy combatant, then you were guilty of this crime. And just seeing that sort of, um, genius evil, as I like to call it, you know, um, on the part of, of the, the creators. I couldn't have done what I did with, without so many people helping and so many people willing to talk to me. Um, you know, I try to cover it on the book and, and give kudos to so many people that were willing to talk to me and um, give me ideas and, uh, and answer my phone calls. Um, but that's, I think, what it was. I, the hypocrisy, you know, pissed me off. You know, in 06, I remember when the story came out that the former Taliban spokesperson for the, it was attending Yale University and Hicks was locked up for aiding the Taliban. I was going, what's going on here? And that, you know, so I think that's what gave me the little effort. It was the hypocrisy that, that uh, pissed me off. And, uh, and I think my pissed offness hopefully came across to everybody I talked to in the media. And, uh, and, and um, yeah, so I don't know. Does that answer your question or not? Yes, ma'am. Um, ma I have two questions. Okay. My first question is, how did you find David Hicks as a person, and how is he to work with? You'll, you'll have to ask him. I try, look, I, I tried, uh, David's kept himself very private, and so I try not, I know it's hard. It's hard, I think I'll forever be, right, I'll forever be that Hicks lawyer. <laughs> Weren't you that Hicks lawyer? Someone comes up, yes, I was the Hicks lawyer. Please let me be known for something else. No, um, but, you know, he's kept his life very private, so... Um, but I do talk a little bit, you know, stuff that I've already said publicly. I had no problem with him. I never felt any animosity from him. I never, you know. But I, I think that one issue you might be asking about is, how do you deal with someone who's completely held incommunicado? And I try to cover it in the book, and I think that was my biggest challenge, was how do you, to say David Hicks made any decision to get him, was probably untrue. How could anybody make a decision down there? You, you're cut off from the world, you're, you know, and... You know, I look back at things, did, I, was, did my voice carry too much? Because I was really his main access. And I think that's a challenge for lawyers that are dealing with people in detention and whether they have support. And, you know, lawyers would all like to say, it's the client made that decision. But in reality, you know, you're, you're driving the ship as the lawyer. And I think it was especially difficult for someone held in such, you know, the inability to make a phone call, you know. We got him a phone call home twice, you know, that was it for his direct contact, and besides letters that would, they love to take out words of affection out of. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Second, oh, your second question? Yeah. You commented on the institutionalization of the detainees. Yeah. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Well, I, I think, I, I think you, you know, that, I, that my experience in trying to interview other detainees for the case, some wouldn't talk to me. I mean, they'd just say, and I had some I needed an interpreter, some I didn't. Some would just say, I can't talk to you unless my interrogator says it's okay. Some didn't believe I was a defense lawyer. You know, um, 
it was hard. You know, uh, that some, you know, supposedly people had, interrogators had held them out as, as lawyers previously as part of an interrogation technique. And so I was supposed to now pop up in my Marine Corps uniform, you know, <laughs> with my name tag covered up <laughs> and say, I'm, no, I'm really here to help. Um, and uh, it, was, it was hard. And, and, you know, I remember um, one detainee, I wanted, you know, I just gave my list and then they carried this guy in on a stretcher who was on a hunger strike. And all he would say is, I just want to die. And, um, you know, I think, the, I just can't imagine someone that has been there for, since 2000, you know, January 2002, and is still there at Guantanamo. Um, and it just shocks me that we're, that we're doing indefinite detention. I, it's it's the, the lifestyle and how you hope the people that are cleared for release do have more communal living. And, I, you know, it's sort of, you know, in the standard of detention, how is it? It's certainly not... You know, they're not there with their families. They're not there with, uh, you know, getting phone calls every day. They don't have cell phones, you know, which shocks me here at some of the detention centers. Hey, I talked to a client. Oh, he has a cell phone. <laughs> That's, um, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I just don't know how you could avoid um, the institutionalization of people there, especially the ones that are even held in that solitary confinement for so many years. It's, Shocking. We know what it does to real prisoners who are convicted and housed in those condi conditions, let alone someone who's never been through a trial. So, did that answer your question? Yeah, thank I've you. Probably got time for a couple more, a few more. Um, Ma'am? Um, you talked about the hypocrisy of the system that you saw and also um, how your efforts started to get scrutinised from the inside. Did you ever doubt whether or question whether if if anything of your actions was brought to light, whether you would be protected by that system and what kind of threat that personally you and your actions could, could come to or how they would be protected? <laughs> uh, well, all right, how do I answer this? I, look, the first press conference, I remember walking up there and all the other defence lawyers were sort of lined up like it was, I was going off to an execution or something, but they're like, are you sure want to do this? You know, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Um, but after I, you know, I didn't, the black vans didn't show up at my house and take me away. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of emboldened everybody. But, you know, to be, to find out about that first investigation, I knew I was solid on legal stance on that I could talk to the media and what I said was appropriate. Um, when it culminated with Colonel Davis, you know, accusing me of violating the uniform code of military justice, I think I was in Sydney and I, you know, was getting up to do a talk and I opened the paper and um, it was like, Maury to be charged after trial. What? <laughs> um, and there he was making these allegations and then getting called from reporters. What? Um, and it was like that, that, that caused a serious dilemma because that could have ultimately, had they pushed that, led to me having to leave the case because then my, there's a, builds a conflict if I'm, you know, if I'm under criminal scrutiny for my conduct as being a lawyer, but it didn't come to that, thank you, thank God. Um, but, uh, no, I wasn't really worried that I ever crossed the line um, of the ethical requirements um, for a lawyer in, the, in that case. I'm not sure what they were for a military commission since one had never been done before. Um, but, you know, does that, does that answer your question? Okay. Yes, sir. sir a couple of things. Um, oh. sorry, David Hicks was prisoner number two. Yes. John Walker Lind was prisoner number one. Yes. How much of a political mistake was it not to bring him to a military commission and bring him to America because he's an American citizen, give him all the rights that everyone else was denied? How much was it a... a Which way? A, to bring Walker Lind to the U.S.? Or, yeah. oh, 
a propaganda disaster. No, but Americans were allowed rights and no one else had. I don't think the America saw it as a propaganda disaster. Bush didn't. He, he, what he was doing was trying to keep the federal courts from having any say what went on there, because they knew that if they put an American there, I think that that American would have access to federal courts, and that all of a sudden that might get make findings or rulings that would be benefit everybody locked up there. So. One, they were concerned about the federal courts getting involved. So keep the, take the U.S. detainees out. There was, you know, there was John Walker Lynn, Hamdi, and Padilla that were all designated any combatants, and, but they were put in, in, in military brigs. And, and Walker never went to a military brig. He just went to the federal system. And Padilla was held as a military, uh, you know, enemy combatant for, I don't know, five years or so. And then all of a sudden he was released, handed to the federal system, and tried in the federal court convicted. And Hamdi... Once he won his case in the Supreme Court, he just had to give up his U.S. citizenship because he was a dual national, Saudi and, and, and U.S. He gave up his U.S. citizenship and he was released and allowed to go back to Saudi Arabia. And very quickly, yeah. um, why do you think Mandu Habib was treated differently to um, David Hicks in the sense that you write in your book about it was devastating because... Oh, you Hicks, read it? I have read All right, excellent. Right. <laughs> uh, Hicks, I, I want you to sign it afterwards. Okay, actually, yes, sir. Um, I've got it with me. Um, you say that Hicks was told in January 2007 that the, the British and the, 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 yep, before, the Australians yep. were going home, and he thought he was going home, and then Habib was sent home, and he was left. Why was he treated differently to Habib when they'd neither done anything? Uh, my speculation on that is that I think the federal court cases were going forward, and I think the federal court case might have disclosed evidence of potential government involvement with his rendition to Egypt. American government? Or American government, Australian government, mm -hmm. coalition of the willing government. Um, and that wouldn't have been politically um, favorable. And so, you know, uh, I know in the commission system, they like to say, oh, we believe he was some, uh, one of the prosecutors says, you know, I didn't think we should try him because he'd been tortured. Okay. Um, you know, um, he was let go when the federal court cases could have gone forward. And I think it would have been embarrassing um, what might have been come out through the federal court dis uh, disclosure process. So that's my, that's my guess. Can I, can I say thank you? And yeah, I'm just going to ask you one more thing. Okay, Corey, go so ahead. Do you still keep in touch with David Hicks? Look, as I answered before, you know, his private life is private, and I, I've, I've tried to respect it. It's hard not, it's hard not to raise it, in a, you know, um, but I, I leave that private. Okay. Thank you. Damn media, damn media is always going <laughs> to... Do you um, have a newfound respect for the media? I do have a new... <laughs> no. But I do want to say thank you all very much for coming. I'm very flattered that you would all come here and, um, and attend, and I hope the ones that buy my book actually find it enjoyable, and I, I hope I did a good enough job writing it, and uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you.